16 years, nine hospitals, and dozens dead. As a nurse working the night shift with critical care patients, he flew under the radar, leaving the facility when his activities were noticed only to go to the next hospital. Tainting IV bags or injecting the patient or their line with drugs, his murders went undetected until one nurse, who was his friend, helped to get his confession. This is Charlie Cullen, the night shift nurse and killer. Hey, y'all, I'm Chris Calvert. And I'm her husband, Rob Potter. Welcome to Hitch to Homicide. For better or worse. Till death do us part. everybody. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome. Or for my California dudes, what's up, what's up, what's up? Bra. Bra. <laughs> bra. I forgot the bra. Yo, bra. <laughs> Yo, bra. What's up? Bra. No, it's not bro, it's bra. Bra. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What we're, are you doing, bra? We're, we're lifting some weights, bra. <laughs> yeah. No. Do you even lift, bra? <laughs> I, I can bench 325, dude. What do you bench? <laughs> Tasty waves. That's right. <laughs> well, wherever you're listening, be sure to like, rate, and review. That helps other people to find us. We're getting some great reviews. If you haven't gone in and left one for us, yep. go do that. We're going to start reading those on the air because some of them are really funny. <laughs> we appreciate that. Yeah. If you haven't joined our closed Facebook group, The In-Laws and Outlaws, just go to Facebook. Yeah, and there's just three easy questions there to answer. There are three little easy questions. Yep. We just want to know how you found us, yep. and we need to make sure that you are okay with seeing some crazy pictures and stuff in that group because i do yep. post murder pictures yep. in there because this is a true crime podcast yep. Yep. i'm going to get started right now on this case i'm not going to waste any time okay this case is a little crazy uh i had him on my list i bumped him up because there is a netflix movie about him right now mm. I did watch it, but I didn't watch it until after I had done all of my research and written my script for today. Gotcha. So let me thank some sources before we get started. Murderpedia, Wikipedia, The New York Times, Elle Magazine, The Inquirer, Murder Minute, Slate.com, The Verona, Cedar Grove Times, The Daily News, The International Personnel Assessment Council, The Big Book of Serial Killers, yes. CBS, Medicalbag.com, <laughs> Wired.com, and The Good Nurse by Charles Graber. I did not read it, but this book is the basis for the Netflix movie starring Eddie Redmayne and Jessica Chastain. Gotcha. And I will post a link to this and all the other sources in the show notes. All right. Are you ready for this? Let's do it. Charles Edmund Cullen is born on February 22, 1960, in West Orange, New Jersey, to Florence Ward and Edmund Cullen. Charlie's mother had immigrated from England after World War II. And Charlie is the baby of eight children. Wow. Count them. Wow. Eight. Wow. They're she a, was pumping them out. They're a big Irish, deeply Catholic family. Mm -hmm. His father is a bus driver, and mom stayed at home and raised the kids, all eight of them. Wow. 
on at, a bus driver's salary. Uh, mm, mm-hmm. wow. I think things were tight. I think it wasn't the best upbringing. Mm-hmm. When Charlie is just seven months old, his father dies. I have looked high and low for a cause of death for Edmund. Couldn't find it. Don't know. Don't know how or why he died, if it was a heart attack or what. Right. Charlie's childhood growing up on Kling Street in West Orange was, quote, miserable, end mm. quote. That's Charlie's. That's Charlie's quote. Assessment. Yes. As the youngest of eight, by the time he was old enough to know he had brothers and sisters, they'd all flown the coop. They were gone. Yeah. And apparently when his brothers and sisters did come home, it wasn't very pleasant because some of his brothers were addicted to drugs. And when his sisters returned, some of them were pregnant. Mm. So when his older siblings would come back, they usually brought with them other people who were unfamiliar to Charlie, and they were sometimes, they were violent people. And on top of this, Charlie was bullied at school. Mm. So he's kind of a frail guy. Even as an adult, he's going to be kind of skinny and nondescript, but... Yeah, because that affects you when you're a kid. Yes, but yeah. he never felt safe anywhere. He didn't feel safe at, at school. He didn't feel safe at home. His only lifeline was his mom. Right. And he was desperate for her love, and he clung to her. She was his friend. She was his protector. And neighbors said that Charlie was smart, he was awkward, and he didn't really have any friends. Okay. His mom was his best friend. Wow. Now, by the age of nine, Charlie has had his first suicide attempt wow he tries to kill himself by drinking chemicals from a chemistry set then by the time charlie is 17 and a senior in high school his mother and sister are in a car accident his sister is driving the car south on prospect avenue she tries to pass another car charlie's sister wrecks taking out two other cars all three drivers are taken to the hospital and released but florence his mother is dead Mm. And I read in one source that his mother had an epilepsy seizure, but she she wasn't driving the car. And I read the actual newspaper article from the morning of the wreck. So I don't think there was a seizure involved at all. Right, right. Now, the hospital is going to cremate her body instead of releasing it. Why do they do that? Well, I think it was a it was a mix up. I think it was a mix up at the hospital. Okay, but this is something that Charlie never forgave the hospital for. Sure. And after Florence's death, Charlie is a seventeen year old orphan. Wow. And he again attempts suicide. Hmm. Now Charlie's devastated. That's his best friend. He drops out of high school and he joins the Navy in 1978, where he boards the USS Woodrow Wilson. Okay. Now he passes basic training and he also passes all the psychological testing that's required for a submarine crew. And I didn't realize that that was a thing, so I looked it up. Yeah. And I read this official naval paper where they talk about the fact that there's no personal space whatsoever. There's no escape from the workplace. There's no escape. <laughs> yeah. From your workplace coworkers, right. there's no sunlight for long periods of time. Your sleep cycles are all screwed up, and it's also a socially intense, physically closed, and potentially dangerous work environment. Yeah, and there are these scales to test whether or not you are capable of doing this job. Really? Yes, there is an affective scale for depression, mood disorders, and anxiety, and 90% of the applicants actually fail this test. And he passed? Yes. Wow. And you would think this isn't the right place for a person like Charlie, who's (laughs) already tried to commit suicide at the age of nine. (laughs) Wow. But he's going to join the submarine crew and be on board for two months at a time. Wow. And he rises to the rank of petty officer, second class, and he's part of a team that operates... The Poseidon missiles. Ooh. 
He's a mentally unstable man <laughs> working in a mentally grueling workplace, and he's in charge of nuclear-armed sub-launch ballistic missiles. Welcome to the Navy. I mean, really? <laughs> there were 16 of them on board, by the way. 16 sub-launched ballistic missiles. Wow. What could go wrong? Yeah, <laughs> there's nothing. That nothing could go wrong, could go wrong yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Charlie doesn't necessarily fit in with the guys on board, and they tease him and they haze him. It's just like school all over again. Right. His fellow sailors are brutal to him, and his bunkmate Marlin said that Charlie was socially inept. "Quote: Charlie hung out with Charlie." Oh wow. Now, while he's serving, Charlie's leading petty officer finds him seated at the missile controls. What? He's wearing a surgical mask, gloves and oh. scrubs, and a green surgical gown, not his uniform. What? He'd stolen all of that garb from the sub's medical cabinet. Jeez. He's disciplined, but he never really says why he dressed up that way. Gee whiz. It's like Halloween on the sub. Yeah, that's scary. And Dr. Death is sitting at, mis at the missile controls. <laughs> Dr. Death. And of course, he can't fire the nuke on his own, but still, it's very unsettling. Sure. And they were definitely unsettled aboard the submarine. Yeah. And because of this, Charlie gets reassigned to a job with less pressure than being in charge of nukes. He's sent to the USS Canopus. Peeling potatoes. It's a supply <laughs> ship. <laughs> yep. It's a supply ship. Yep. And while he's here, Charlie attempts suicide again and is sent to the Navy Psychiatric Ward, a place he's going to spend some time at over the next few years, because while he's enlisted in the Navy, Charlie will attempt to kill himself seven times, I read. And so he wasn't discharged after he tried to commit He's going to be. Hang on. Okay. In 1984. Right. There it is. Okay. In 1984, he's given a medical discharge from the Navy for undisclosed reasons. <laughs> I don't know that the reasons are all that undisclosed at this point. Yeah. Also, there are only a few instances where we actually know how Charlie attempts suicide. Okay. So I don't know if that number has been inflated, if that number came from him. Yeah. But there have been numerous suicide attempts. Did they... I mean, did they ever say how he tried to commit suicide? We do know some of them, and I'm going to give you a couple of examples okay. coming up. This okay. is not the last suicide attempt Charlie's going to make. Okay. But what happens in the Navy sort of teaches Charlie that you can leave one place and start over in another. Okay. And he had this inability to connect with others, his fellow sailors or other people in general. But even in the wake of odd behavior or discipline, he could get a fresh start by moving somewhere else, going to a new place where nobody knew him or about his past. Okay. That's called foreshadowing. Dun, dun, dun. And soon after his discharge, Charlie enrolls at the Mountainside Hospital Nursing School in Montclair, New Jersey. He's even elected president of his nursing class. He's also their only male student. Okay. So it seems like maybe he thrived a little bit here. Yeah, he fit in a little bit better. And he wanted to be a nurse. He said he wanted to help people. I don't know if he was pretending to be a nurse when he was behind the controls of the nuke on the submarine, and right. that's why he was dressed in the medical garb, but... Or was he fantasizing that he was in the, the medical field and he was going to blow up the hospital? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just From thinking. the submarine? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. But he's their only male student. And because I know registered nurses require a few more years than just two, because that's how long he's there, I looked up the Mountainside Hospital, and it opened in 1892. It was one of New Jersey's oldest diploma schools for nurses. It closed in 2011. 
and the Mountainside students graduate from a two-year program with a diploma that allows them to take the state test to be a licensed, registered nurse. Now, you need four Mm. years now. Right. But while Charlie's in school, he's working odd jobs to pay his way through school. And in 1987, while working at the Roy Rogers restaurant in <laughs> West Orange, New Jersey. I love Roy Rogers. Roy Rogers. <laughs> I've been to one before. Yeah. He meets Adrian Baum. And Roy Rogers is just one of three jobs that Charlie is working. I have to interrupt just for a second. This is like so off random. When I hear Roy Rogers, I think of the fries when their fries are done. They had a little thing that went. Did you work at a Roy Rogers? No, I, we used to go there for lunch when I worked for Paramount. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go ahead. How's that go again? What's that little tune? Okay, and now you know. That's the only thing I remember. And now you know. There you go. But Charlie's working at Roy Rogers, and he meets Adrian. And Adrian is right out of college when she meets Charlie, and Charlie is smitten right away. He's showered her with gifts and became the perfect boyfriend. There you go. Six months after these two meet, they're engaged. And a week after Charlie graduates in 1987, these two are married. Oh, wow. They even return from their honeymoon a day early because Charlie's anxious to start his new nursing career working at the burn unit at St. Barnabas Medical Center in Livingston, New Jersey. Okay. And these two will have their first of two daughters in late 1987. All right. Now, at the time, St. Barnabas was the only certified burn unit in all of New Jersey, which meant that patients came from far and wide. And burn patients are in constant pain. And Charlie's job was to clean the patients. He had to wash away Mm. the layers of skin with a brush and soap. And the drug of choice to ease the suffering of these people was morphine. Sure. And according to a fellow co-worker on the burn unit, Charlie was quiet and gave very private One word answers to questions like, are you married? Yes. (laughs) His bedside manner was forced. Quote, it was like he was going through the motions, patting someone on the hand and telling them they're going to be okay." End quote. Yeah. Now, not long after starting his job, Charlie commits his first murder. Hmm. June 11th, 1988, Judge John W. Yingo Sr. was admitted to St. Barnabas Hospital in Livingston after suffering from an allergic reaction to a blood thinning drug. The 72-year-old was from New Jersey City, New Jersey, where he was a municipal judge who ran twice for the mayor of his hometown. Now, Charlie's going to later admit to killing several other patients while he's at St. Barnabas, including an AIDS patient who died after Charlie gave him an overdose of insulin. Charlie will leave St. Barnabas in January of 1992 when the hospital begins to investigate contaminated IV bags. And this is how Charlie is getting the lethal doses into patients most of the time. He is dosing their IV bags with either digoxin or insulin. Wow. Those are his two drugs of choice. Drugs of choice. Yes. One's a heart medication and then the other, obviously, insulin. So let me interrupt just for a second. The fact that he killed his first patient... Shortly after he started working for them, I mean, yes. So he had this plan the whole time when he went into nursing. He was like, "I'm going to get my nursing degree, get a job, and start killing people." I I don't know that he had it planned, but he was knocking futs. I mean, he ain't yeah. right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So in the end, he is going to kind of give an explanation for why he was doing what he was doing, but he's never really given a full explanation okay. why he's doing this. All right, he's just killing. Yeah. 
In February of 1992, Charlie moved the whole family to a little red brick house in Phillipsburg, New Jersey, which sits on the Delaware River in northwestern New Jersey. Here he takes a job at Warren Hospital, where he works in the cardiac and intensive care units, a place where people aren't always expected to make it out alive in the first place, right? right? right. So this is a department where a single nurse will be in charge of several patients and will spend lots of time with them unsupervised, especially on the 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. shift. Okay. Now, today, most nurses work 12-hour shifts. Right. But back in the day, back in the good old days, mm. it was 7 to 3, 3 to 11, 11 to 7. Gotcha. And Charlie would work the 11 to 7. He liked the night shift because it was quiet and it was empty in the hospital. And there was nobody around to watch him. Yeah, less human contact yeah. that way. And he's working critical care, and these patients might need dangerous drugs on a moment's notice. So the nurses have relatively free access to all of them, at least in 1992. Now, things are a little bit different, and we're going to talk about that. Things are a little different now. But then Charlie's personal life begins to collapse. Adrian filed a restraining order and filed for divorce in January of 1993, saying that she was afraid of her husband and that he had abused – this is going to kill Rob – Mm-mm. He had abused their Yorkies. Oh. She would find them stuffed in a bowling bag. Oh. And right, right, let's, let's just execute them right now. Yeah. And rightfully <laughs> so, Adrian picked her two daughters and her two dogs over her hinky husband. Yeah. She also listed in the restraining order that she was afraid of him, that her two daughters were in danger, and that Charlie had spiked people's drinks with lighter fluid. Jeez. He had left their girls with a babysitter for an entire week. He burned one of his daughter's books and that Charlie wouldn't talk or sleep with her and hadn't for years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Two months later, Lucy McGavaro, age 90, of Phillipsburg, New Jersey, died on March 9th, 1993 at Warren Hospital. She was a former garment worker with three children and eight grandchildren, one of whom later became the mayor of Phillipsburg and chairman of the Delaware River Joint Toll Bridge Commission. She died of an overdose of the heart medication digoxin. Hmm. Now, I am going to give you details about these victims because we always like to sure. talk about the victims and yep. not just the killer. Yep. So I'm going to give you just little snippets of their lives as I go through this. Okay. Now, Adrian and Charlie's divorce is final, and he moves into a basement apartment on Schaefer Avenue in Phillipsburg, because where does a killer live? In a basement. In a basement. In a basement apartment <laughs> where do. it's dark and dank and, yeah. yeah. They, they always do uh, on the movies, so yeah. yeah and, he, and he did in real life. Yeah. Later, he'll say that it's at this point that he just wanted to quit nursing altogether, but he couldn't because he owed too much money in child support. Mm. Then soon after Adrian leaves him, Charlie develops an obsession with a co-worker, a single mom named Michelle Tomlinson. And after taking her out on a date, he is all consumed by Michelle. Hmm. He would follow her around the hospital. He would stalk her. He would leave her gifts and treats. He would come to the hospital even on his days off to see her. Really? If you are a nurse working at the hospital and it is your day off, the last place you want to be <laughs> is the hospital. Exactly. And that's what he is doing. Wow. Michelle is overwhelmed. She pushes him away. Charlie's not to be deterred. He tried to give her an engagement ring. What? Yeah. According to one police report, he Jeez. tried to give her an engagement ring. And despite Michelle's please, he would not leave her alone. Wow. 
He would circle her block late at night. He would look through her windows at her while she slept. And then just before dawn on March 23, 1993, Charlie smashes a window in the kitchen door, lets himself in and walks through her house in Northampton, Pennsylvania, Mm. while she and her six-year-old son slept. Wow. He broke into her home and watched her sleeping. Everybody knows. (laughs) Yeah. Can you? This is my fear. Yeah. You yeah. Can, can you say psychopath? Yeah, he's just standing in the doorway watching her sleep. Wow. And he leaves without waking them up. And then he begins to call her incessantly. He leaves her messages over and over and over. And he'd gone from following her around the hospital to following her around town, too. She oh, was. And Michelle files a complaint with the police. Charlie pled guilty to trespassing, admitting to the police that he would fantasize that he and Michelle were boyfriend and girlfriend. Wow. And Charlie received one year of probation, but after his arrest, Charlie attempts suicide again. Then he takes two months off from work and was treated for depression in two different psychiatric facilities, one of which was Greystoke Hospital in Parsippany, New Jersey. I also read where his neighbor said that he would chase cats in the middle of the night. He would yell at cats, and then he would talk to himself. And if that's not weird enough... Charlie has a pet ferret. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing against ferret owners, but he does have a pet ferret. (laughs) But after his two months off, Charlie goes back to work at Warren Hospital and more people start dying again. July 23rd, 1993, Mary Natoli, who's 85 years old, was a former silk mill worker who was described by her family as a hardworking Italian grandmother. Hmm. She dies of an overdose of the heart medication Dijoxin. Okay. Then September 1st, 1993, Helen Dean, age 91, passes away. Helen was in the hospital for breast cancer surgery. Helen said that, quote, a sneaky male nurse, end quote, had injected her as she slept. However, family members and healthcare providers at the hospital dismissed her comments as unfounded. Mm. The next day, Helen Dean was released, but she, quote, looked green, end quote, according to her niece, Sharon Jones. And that afternoon... Helen Dean suffered a heart attack and died. Wow. Can I ask you a question? So this, what's the medication? Dijoxin. Dijoxin. Okay. Mm -hmm. So these people OD'd from Dijoxin. Did they do an autopsy and did they discover that they had OD'd on this medication? And was there any investigation? You're getting ahead of us. Sorry. You're getting ahead of us so far. All right, go ahead. But right now, I mean, the things that he is giving to people, the problem is, with Helen. He screwed up with Helen, and we're going to find out. Because okay. she was in for breast cancer surgery. She didn't have anything going on with her heart. And, and when he's working yeah. in critical care, yeah. people are on respirators and right. are in you know, right. congestive heart failure, whatever. If they die of a heart attack or they just code, right. which is what he's getting them to do in the right. hospital, it's, you know, they're, they're in intensive care. Sure. Most of the time, most of these people weren't expected to live. And most of them were older. Right. Most of them, but not all of them. Okay. But her son, Larry Dean, told the county prosecutor's office that his mother had been murdered and that he knew who did it and how. And the prosecutor's office and medical examiner investigated, confirmed the unprescribed injection and determined that the male nurse was almost certainly Charlie Cullen. Oh, wow. 
but an autopsy had a simple oversight, and that was huge because Helen's blood and tissue were tested for 100 possible toxic chemicals. But digoxin, this common heart medication that's fatal in large doses, was not on the list. Uh, What? No. And when Helen's family goes to the DA, the prosecutor's office investigates and they give a lie detector test to a handful of nurses that came in contact with Helen, including Charlie. So did he pass the test? Well, according to a hospital spokesperson, yes. But according to an official who is involved in the inquiry, Charlie's test was, quote, inconclusive, end Mm. quote. Okay. And the case is dropped. Really? For now. Okay. I'll try not to get ahead of me. Don't get ahead of me. All right. There's still tons of victims to come. All right. But why didn't the hospital keep him from coming back to work there after he had stalked one of his coworkers? Well, the supervisors didn't know about it. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, Charlie leaves Warren Hospital of his own accord on December 30th, 1993. His personal and work history now includes like six suicide attempts. Mm a couple of psychiatric commitments, a restraining order, a criminal conviction for stalking, and a family accusing him of murder. That'll get you your next job. There's a nursing (laughs) shortage. And guess what? Well, there's always a nursing shortage. Not all the nurses who listen to this podcast are nodding right now. And he's immediately hired to work the intensive care unit at Hunterdon Medical Center in Flemington. And again, people start to die. Leroy Sin, age 71, dies on January 21st, 1996. Leroy was a patent attorney and a member of a club called the Gardeners of Somerset Valley. He used his legal knowledge to help the club set up a scholarship fund. Then Earl Young, age 76, died on May 31st, 1996. Earl worked as a stock clerk at Flemington Cut Glass, where the owner described him as a reserved but easygoing person. Okay. Catherine Dext, age 49. She dies on June 9th, 1996. Catherine was a supervisor at the Edna Mahan Correctional Facility for Women in Union Township, where a colleague described her as a low-key person who always did her job. June 24th, 1996, Frank Mazico. Frank taught for 34 years in public schools in Trenton and at one time served as the teachers' union president. Then Jesse Eichlin, age 81, dies on July 10th, 1996. Jesse was a farmer and a carpenter who used his skills to help build a Sunday school wing for his Franklin Township Church. All of these people are amazing, had these amazing lives, good people. And all of these patients were given overdoses of digoxin or insulin. Wow. Then Charlie takes a job at Morristown Memorial Hospital where he is promptly fired for poor performance. He will be unemployed for six months, and he's going to get behind in his child support payments. Then in 1997, he will go to the Warren Hospital emergency room seeking treatment for depression, and he's going to be admitted to a psych ward. Then February 1998, Charlie is hired by the Liberty Nursing and Rehabilitation Center in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And again, Charlie is put with the sickest patients. And this time he went to work on the vent unit for people who needed ventilators to breathe. Hmm. On May 8, 1998, Francis Henry was rushed away from the nursing home to Lehigh Valley Hospital. And at Lehigh, they're struggling to save Francis's life because Francis, age 83, has a very low blood sugar level, a sign of an insulin overdose. Mm. And although he had lots wrong with him, Francis was not on insulin. And a woman named Kimberly Pepe 
Kimberly Pepe, the nurse that cared for Mr. Henry on the overnight shift, insisted to the hospital that she had not given him insulin, and she repeated her denial several times to her own supervisors, according to court papers. Okay. But she knew who might have done it, and she told them Charlie Cullen, the nurse who was assigned to Francis Henry's roommate and who was in that room repeatedly during that night. Wow. And according to Kimberly, there was more reason to suspect him. In a lawsuit and a complaint she later filed with a federal agency, she said that even before Mr. Henry's emergency, Liberty was investigating Charlie Cullen for stealing drugs. Oh, wow. And then on May 13th, just five days after Mr. Henry's mysterious insulin dose, Charlie files for bankruptcy, claiming $66,888 in debts, including hospital bills. His possessions amounted to a 1985 Dodge truck, a bicycle, a few books, and videotapes. But Kimberly Pepe claimed that at first her supervisors even agreed that Charlie was probably responsible for Francis Henry's decline. But then all of a sudden they changed their minds. And Mr. Henry died on May 19th and Liberty fired Kimberly Pepe, but they kept Charlie. Did they ever explain why they changed their minds? No. Huh. They're later going to deny that Charlie was under investigation for stealing drugs. And when Kimberly filed a lawsuit with HCR Manor Care, who owns Liberty, it's all settled out of court and under terms of secrecy. Makes no sense whatsoever. Well, it kind of does if you think about it, because they don't want lawsuits. So they're sweeping everything under the rug. They're sweeping Charlie under the rug. This is going to happen in more than one hospital. He's going to go from place to place to place. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Now, Charlie's eventually going to be fired after being seen entering a patient's room with syringes in his hand. And he has another encounter that leaves a patient with a broken arm. Now, officially, he's let go for violating medication protocols. And Liberty reports the incident to the State Department of Health as a medication error. But he is not reported to the state police or the State Board of Nursing. Why not? They just sweep it under the rug. So they'd rather take a chance on people dying than to... to they'd rather to look the reputation. other way. Yeah. They'd rather look the other way. Yeah. They'd rather look the other way. Yeah. But don't worry about Charlie, because he finds work. He finds work very easily. <laughs> Jeez. And when his new employer calls Liberty before hiring him, they do not... Pass along their concerns. Gee whiz. And here's why. The establishments are afraid of the blowback of lawsuits on either side. So they sweep it all under the carpet. And according to an article in the New York Times, employers frequently refuse to pass on negative information, even about people they have fired for fear of being sued for slander by the former employee. Wow. And state and federal systems for warning employers of bad doctors and nurses are widely regarded as weak. <laughs> you think? I'd say so. Jeez. <laughs> oh, the reporting, wow. yeah, the reporting requirements are so narrowly drawn that it's not clear that they would ever have applied to somebody like Charlie. And there are few penalties for hospitals that flout reporting rules. And if you watch the Netflix movie, you are going to see this in action. They really cover this in the Netflix movie. I hope some of this has changed for for the better now. I don't know. Really? I don't know. If you work in healthcare and you want to go into the in-laws and outlaws and give us an inside look, be my guest. Inquiring minds want to know. 
Now, after leaving Liberty, Charlie is employed at Easton Hospital from November of 1998 to March of 1999. And on December 30th, 1998, Ottomar Schramm, age 78, of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, dies. He's described by his daughter as a man who worked two jobs to provide for his wife and three children. Shram was born in Nicaragua to missionaries, hmm. and digoxin in lethal amounts were found in his bloodstream. But an internal investigation was inconclusive. What? Inconclusive? Inconclusive. Wow. However, a man named Zachary Lysick, the Northampton County coroner, investigated Mr. Shram's death for eight months because he never thought that Mr. Schramm, that Ottomar Schramm's death was accidental. Right. And his autopsy showed that he had these lethal amounts of digoxin, but he never asks the DA's office to open a criminal inquiry. Hmm. And the DA never even knows the name Charlie Cullen. Really? So in March of 1999, Charlie is off to the burn unit at Allentown's Lehigh Valley Hospital, Cedarcrest, where he murders Matthew Mattern, age 22, mm. of Shimokin, Pennsylvania, on August 31st, 1999. He is one of Charlie's youngest victims. I was going to say, that's, that's totally different, a 22-year-old. Yes, and he was, he was in the hospital because he was severely burned after a car accident. Okay. Then one month later, Charlie voluntarily resigns from Lehigh and takes a job working the critical care unit at St. Luke's Hospital in Bethlehem. It's now April of 1999. Okay. Then on January 11th, 2000, Charlie makes another suicide attempt. Now, remember I told you I know how he did it at least once. Okay. This time, he lit a charcoal grill in his bathtub. Oh, hoping to die of carbon monoxide poisoning. Wow. And his neighbor, Karen, who lives directly above Charlie, will smell the smoke. She's going to call the fire department and the police. Inside the apartment, Charlie has insulation stuffed into the air vents, batteries removed from smoke alarms, and a charcoal grill smoldering away in his bathtub. Jeez. And Charlie is taken to a hospital and a psychiatric facility, but he is returned home the next day. January 12th, 2000. First of all, what was the point of the bathtub? I mean, that just... It may, it's no that, rhyme or reason. Yeah, I know. That's rhetorical. But I just... It's like I put a charcoal grill in my bathtub instead of just... Yeah. Well, maybe he's just trying to die of carbon monoxide poisoning and not set the entire apartment aflame, okay. killing his neighbor. Right. But he doesn't seem to have a problem killing other people. Yeah. So I don't know. I guess the charcoal grill's in his bathtub to contain it. Okay. Thanks, Charlie. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, there's not a whole lot that makes sense about this guy. Yeah, yeah. Charlie will work at St. Luke's for the next three years, taking the lives of at least five, and he attempted to kill two more. Here are his victims. Irene Krapf, age 79, dies June 22, 2001 at St. Luke's. She had eight children, 22 grandchildren, and wow. helped her husband run a taxi company out of the family's home. Mm. William Park, age 72, dies on November 8th, 2001. He was a self-employed upholsterer and a Korean War veteran who lived in Franklin Township. Samuel Spangler, age 80, died on January 9th, 2002 at St. Luke's. His son Ronald described his father as a proud family man who was a former machine operator at Stroh Brewing Company. 
Daniel George, age 82, dies on May 5th, 2002. He owned George's Food Liner in Bethlehem and Danny's Restaurant and Lounge in Hanover Township. He had three daughters and three grandchildren. Edward O'Toole, age 76, of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. He dies on June 2nd, 2002. He was a Navy veteran of World War II who worked 20 years as a district sales manager in Pennsylvania for A.O. Smith Water Heater Company before retiring in 1990. And then in August of 2002, the Pennsylvania State Police arrive at St. Luke's because the nurses there had persuaded the police to come because they were worried about a former co-worker who they believed had been mishandling medication, and they think it might have played a role in several deaths at the hospital. Mm-hmm. And these nurses will tell police that the hospital isn't interested in investigating. And these nurses to this day have remained anonymous. But they're telling police, look it. Yeah. Charlie Cullen is killing people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the it, hospital didn't want to do anything yeah, about it. Yeah. And it looks wow. like a major law enforcement agency is finally on the case. Right. Not so fast. Really? Even though the nurses pieced together Charlie's history at St. Luke's and told the police about how weird he was and how they all thought he was up to something, nothing comes of it. Gee. Nothing comes of it. Why not? Nothing's prosecutable. Nothing, wow. They find nothing. Wow. Because it's all circumstantial. It's all, I mean, well, but hang on. Okay. Hang on. All right. Hang all right. on. All right. When Charlie was hired in the CCU at St. Luke's, he quickly established this reputation as being odd. Mm-hmm. But his disciplinary record was spotless. Really? For two really? years. But then in June of 2002... Wait, nurse- wait, 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 stop. Just from that hospital? Because what about the stalking and... There are no records of those. Every hospital he goes to, he hits a clean slate. Wow. That's what I was telling you. Yeah, That's okay. his MO. All right. Yeah, clean I'm, slate. I'm trying to follow the dots here. Yeah. Yeah. But here's why the nurses called the police. Because in June of 2002, a nurse on the unit opened a disposal container for dirty syringes and found... Vials of unused drugs, hmm. procainamide to treat arrhythmia, and sodium nitroprusside for high blood pressure. Okay. And the nurse reported the incident to hospital officials, and the next day, another collection of medication was discovered in the container. And hospital officials quickly conclude that Charlie did it. Charlie's hmm. to blame. Wow. They take him off duty. He refuses to answer any questions, and he resigns. Then Charlie leaves, and the administration is like, why would Charlie steal medications that aren't also used recreationally? Right. Because the drugs he's stealing have zero street value. Right. And why were patients dying on Charlie's shift? Well, because he's murdering (laughs) them, and no one is connecting the dots, except for the nurses. Yeah, exactly. And detectives who were stumped, I mean, they know something's afoot. So they hire a private medical expert. His name is Dr. Malakas, who just so happened to be the same pathologist who was in on Helen Dean's death at Warren Hospital, the woman who had breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And he reviewed 69 of St. Luke's patients who died on Charlie's ward or watch. Mm -hmm. And after reviewing all the files, he couldn't establish a pattern. Quote, nothing was prosecutable. End quote. Wow. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Gosh. Now, at this point, Charlie has been through seven jobs, forced out of three of them, survived how God knows how many 
well, depending on which source you used, suicide attempts. Suicide, right. He's been committed to four psychiatric hospitals, and he has had three investigations into suspicious deaths. So Charlie takes a job for 16 days at Sacred Heart Hospital in Allentown, Pennsylvania. But then he's fired for not being able to get along with the other nurses. <laughs> so he goes back to New Jersey, where his ex-wife and his two daughters are still living. By the way, Adrian has kept the girls away from Charlie, even though they do share custody. Gotcha. She's like, sorry, sorry, sorry Charlie. Charlie. <laughs> not happening. Yep. But then in September of 2002, Charlie takes a job at Somerset Medical Center in Somerville, New Jersey. And this is where Charlie really gets busy. Okay. And this is also where Charlie meets and befriends Amy Lauren. She is actually the good nurse. And if you've watched this Netflix movie called The Good Nurse, you know that Amy is the good nurse. She's played by Jessica Chastain. All right. Eddie Redmayne plays Charlie. Right. And he does a great Charlie. Okay. He's creepy as sh- <laughs> Amy is a single mom of two or one, depending on which source you look at. I think she had one daughter who was 11 at the time. I think she has two daughters now. Okay. And Amy suffered from cardiomyopathy. And in the in the movie, it says that she does suffer from cardiomyopathy, but that she was she needed a heart transplant. In real life, she just needed a pacemaker, which she actually gets while she's working with Charlie, while she knows Charlie and she's working with him. Okay. She does hide her condition. She does make her condition a secret in real life. She does make it a secret in the movie as well. Um, they say that she makes it a secret in the movie because she doesn't have health care insurance or she's just a few months away from that. But the real reason was that she was a contract nurse yeah. and her salary included a $20,000 bonus and a $1,700 a month stipend for housing. Gotcha. And she this was a good gig yeah. and she did not want to lose it. Sure. She's, she's a single mom and she still had a house in upstate New York that she's paying for while she's working in Jersey. Gotcha. So it wasn't because of her health care insurance. So I did what it made it a little more dramatic that she was, yeah, you know, sure. needing a full heart transplant. Artistic license. Exactly. Yeah. But when Amy meets Charlie, these two are working the late shifts. And he would actually help her out if Amy had an episode during her work shift that left her breathless. Charlie would really pick up the slack. Okay. This is a quote from her. Quote, he was funny. We bonded right away and became friends, end quote. Hmm. And they did. They really did have a special friendship. But then on February 12, 2003, Eleanor Steckler, age 60, dies at Somerset Medical Center. She was a retired medical assistant and the mother of Philadelphia, New York, and New Jersey radio personality, Zach Martin. Oh, wow. Eleven days later, on February 23rd, Joyce Mangini, age 74, dies. She's a homemaker who loved cooking and crocheting. Mm. On the same day, February 23rd, Gia Camino J. Toto, age 89. That's a mouthful. Yes. Mr. Toto was known as Jack. Okay. He spent 25 years as a mechanic and operated a vegetable stand. Hmm. 16 days later, John Shanaher, age 83. He dies on March 11th. He was a World War II veteran who worked as a milkman and a mail carrier. And relatives said he often spoke of helping to liberate concentration camps in Europe. Oh, wow. These are just amazing yeah. souls. And this guy's on a tirade. He's just on a tirade, and he's ripping these people from the earth. Wow. The next month, Dorothea Hoagland, she's 80 years old. She dies on April 6, 2003. Dorothea was a homemaker. 
Then on May 5th, Melvin Simcoe, age 66. Melvin was a Korean War veteran and a district manager for Bell Corps of Livingston for 35 years. He was a father of four. He retired in the early 1990s. And his wife said that he enjoyed growing flowers. Then 10 days later, Michael Strinko, age 21, dies on May 15th. The former high school soccer and track team member worked packaging materials for Fisher Scientific. His family said he was proud of his physique. Mm. And his booming car stereo. It was it was early 2000s. What sure. can you say? Yeah. Then one month later, June 28th, Florian Gall. Father Gall was pastor of Our Lady of Lords, a Roman Catholic Church in White House Station and Hunterdon County Vicar for the Diocese of Metuchen. Wow. That's, that's a title. That was a lot. Put that on your business card. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I messed that up, Father Gall. And if you're listening to me up in heaven, I apologize. But Father Gall's death is where things are going to take a turn. So hold that thought. Okay. Holding. Then on July 13th, Pascal Neapolitano, age 80, he was a World War II veteran. He worked for 30 years as a security manager for village supermarkets of Bernardsville and Morristown. One month later, Christopher B. Hargrove, age 38, dies on August 11th, 2003. He was a carpenter and a father of two daughters. Oh, man. Then on September 20th, Christianot Uppelay, age 70, he passes away. Three days after that, James R. Strickland, age 83. He dies on September 23rd, 2003. Family said he was grieving for his wife when he was killed. He loved playing harmonica so much so that one was buried with him. Oh, wow. And then one month later, Edward P. Zizek, age 73, dies on October 21st, 2003. He was an electrical engineer for 30 years and also volunteered at Somerset Medical Center. Mm. Now, all of these patients are at Somerset Medical Center. Okay. And here's the thing about Somerset. There were computerized records of patients' medications. Right. Because now it's 2002 and 2003, baby. Sure, sure. So when Charlie would ask the hospital's computerized drug dispensing program, it would show that he was requesting meds that weren't prescribed for that patient. Right. Charlie was the master of this new machine that the hospitals started using to track and distribute the drugs. It's a computerized cabinet called a Prixis MedStation. Right. And it's manufactured by an Ohio company called Cardinal Health. And the machine is essentially a metal drug cash register. Yeah, it's like a vending machine. Yeah, with a computer screen and a keyboard at the top. And at the time, not all the nurses liked it. They weren't really comfortable with the new computerized meds dispenser. Okay. But Charlie loved it. Remember? Why did he love well, it? Well, he worked aboard nuclear submarines. Uh, He'd always been really good with technical devices. He appreciated <laughs> uh, how the machine efficiently tracked a nurse's drug withdrawals, linking each one with the account of a particular patient right. and the nurse to create a record. And hospital administrators relied on Prixis to simplify billing while allowing the pharmacy to know exactly what was running low, which drug was running low. Mm. Now, later, homicide detectives are going to study Charlie's Prixis record, but they didn't see a smoking gun. They didn't see a clear pattern of drug orders by him corresponding to the hospital overdoses. What they did find were a large number of 
canceled orders. Mm. And Charlie knew if he placed an order of the drug for his own patient, then quickly canceled it, the drug drawer popped open anyway. And he could simply take what he wanted without recording it in the system. It was that easy. And that is in the movie. And that did really happen. Wow. Now, remember I said that Father Gall's death is where it gets interesting? Sure. Well, here's what happened. Charlie, of course, picks the weak impala of the herd, but Father Gall had showed signs of improvement, and when he died of a massive heart attack, his autopsy showed that he had a lethal dose of digoxin in his system. And this is when Amy, Charlie's friend, sees the documents that listed the drugs that Charlie was ordering, and she knew it was wrong. Mm. She knew it was wrong. Okay. Quote, There were so many withdrawals of lethal medication that you wouldn't order unless you wanted to kill someone, end quote. Wow. And Father Gall was their fourth incident in a month, and the Somerset Hospital officials start digging deeper. They bring in experts on July 1st, but he's going to kill until October. Jeez. So they bring in people July 1st. He just keeps going until October. And when it becomes overwhelming, the hospital notifies the county prosecutor and the state health officials. On October 31st, Charlie is fired for lying on his job application. That's it? That is what he is fired for. They had to get rid of him somehow. Okay. They think that he's up to something. They want to sweep this under the carpet, so they fire him for lying on his job application. Now, in the movie, it's that he listed the dates of his employment someplace, and that was wrong. Gotcha. I don't know exactly what it was that was on his resume or his CV that they got him for, but that's that's why they fired him. Well, they got Al Capone for tax evasion. So it's I kind guess. of the same thing, I <laughs> exactly. guess. But police begin to gather evidence and they keep a close eye on him. And this is when the investigators approached Amy Lauren and Amy feels like something is up. She knows it's hinky. But when police started showing up, the deaths continued, but the digoxin orders weren't there. Hmm. So she's going back to be like, okay, these people are still dying, but there there aren't these extra digoxin orders. Right. The cancel orders had stopped because you'd be able to see where he canceled an order. Right. But the murders had not stopped. And medical investigators puzzled over these records and they found nothing unusual. But Amy did. Hmm. Amy noticed that Charlie was frequently ordering acetaminophen from the computer system. That's Tylenol. Yeah. But why would he go to the trouble of logging in his personal information just to order Tylenol? And why did he order them one at a time rather than in batches? Because it made no sense. Until the next night, when Amy returned for her shift... She ordered acetaminophen and watched the drawer pop open, and there stocked in the plastic tray beside the acetaminophen was the digoxin. A and D shared a drawer. Oh, wow. So Charlie had been ordering one, but he was using the other. Wow. So it's at this point that Amy starts working with the police, and they actually ask Amy for help. Detectives want Amy to wear a wire and to chat Charlie up in an out-of-hospital situation to get him to admit to killing these patients or to misusing the drugs. Okay. And when she's confronted, Amy, who wants to keep her job, is found out because they go to wire her up and they see her scar from her recent Uh, pacemaker implant. Oh, jeez. And the detective says, 
we can't put this wire on you. Yeah. And Amy says, uh, yes, you can. Quote, I'm a cardiac nurse. I know I'll be okay. End quote. Wow. So Amy had to actually talk them into this because they were ready to shut the whole thing down. Okay. She has since admitted that she didn't know how the wire would actually affect oh, her heart. Really? But she knew she couldn't let Charlie murder anybody else. Right, right. Quote, I needed to go in there and get that confession. I was determined, maybe not brave. End quote. Gotcha. So she was saying, I was determined to do this. I wasn't very brave, She's but I knew person. I had to do this. She's I knew a good I had person. to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And meanwhile, since he's been let go for his error on his CV, they're still watching him. Sure. The police are kind of keeping a close eye on him. And on December 12, 2003, Amy and Charlie meet at a restaurant for dinner in Somerville. Amy's wearing the wire. And she gets enough information out of Charlie for him to be arrested on probable cause. Okay. And while he's munching on a spring roll and sipping on a beer, <laughs> the police are out in their van. They hear enough to say, okay, we got probable cause, and they swoop in. And that's exactly what they do. They swoop into the restaurant. They take him down right there, and Charlie Cullen went quietly. Wow. Now, in the movie— he leaves the restaurant. They don't think they have enough. They end up, like, tracking him down in his car. But they actually took him down in, in the restaurant while he's eating a spring roll and sipping on a beer. I did read those things. Wow. Yeah. Then later at the police station, Amy shows up and Amy tells Charlie that he needs to come clean and confess. And in an interview with Amy and Jessica Chastain, Jessica talks about the fact that when everyone else was treating Charlie like a monster— Amy was still treating him like a human. She's still treating him like he is her friend. Right. And I think that's why he actually confesses. Yeah. Somebody took pity on him. Sure. And it was Amy. And he does confess. And here's what Amy said, quote, I was wrestling with how much I still cared for him. He was my friend. I didn't know the murderer. Yeah. End quote. Yeah. Yeah. The two sides of Charlie. The two sides of Charlie. Yeah. Yeah. Or the 17 sides of Charlie. <laughs> exactly. Now, all this time, Charlie doesn't know that Amy was wearing a wire. He doesn't know it until way after he's arrested because she visits him in prison at least a dozen times. Okay. Because she wants to know if she's harmed anyone accidentally by way of Charlie. Right. And when Charlie discovers that Amy was working for the New Jersey prosecution, he cuts all ties with her. Yeah. All ties. Sure. Charlie Cullen eventually confessed to 40 murders, wow. although it's believed that he killed far more than that. Yeah. He tells the police his story of 16 years, murdering 12 to 15 patients at Somerset, six more at St. Luke's, 10 to 20 at the other hospitals mm -hmm. and nursing homes. Mm -hmm. So why? Yeah. Why do this? And Charlie said that he administered overdoses to patients to spare them from being, quote, coded yeah. or going into cardiac or respiratory arrest and being listed as a, quote, code blue emergency. But there are plenty of other hospital personnel who have said that these codes were happening because of Charlie. And then he was also there to try to be the hero, too. Mm -hmm. So he would know exactly what the patient needed without, quote, knowing right. it was an insulin overdose or a digoxin OD. Right. Charlie has told detectives that he could not bear to witness or hear about attempts at saving a victim's life. He also claims that he gave patients overdoses so that he could end their, quote, suffering 
and prevent hospital personnel from, quote, dehumanizing them, end quote. What? But he ended the lives of people who were getting better, too. Wow. So when he says, I wanted to keep hospital personnel from, quote, dehumanizing, is he talking about what happened to his mom? Yeah. 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 I totally believe that. Yeah. Charlie's also told investigators that although he often thought about murdering his victims over several days as he witnessed their, quote, suffering, the decision to commit murder was always performed on impulse. He said he didn't plan any of these, Hmm. just did it on impulse. Okay. He told detectives in December of 2003 that he lived most of his life in a fog and that he had blacked out the memory of murdering most of his victims. He said he could not recall how many of them were or why he had chosen them. So in some cases, Charlie has adamantly denied committing murders at a given hospital. But then after reviewing the medical records, he would later say, okay, yeah, I was involved in that too. (laughs) Yeah. So Charlie, who killed so many, will escape the death penalty. Really? Which is surprising for a man who had so many suicide attempts. Yeah. Yeah. He made a deal with prosecutors to tell them which patients he killed with hard-to-detect drug injections. And Charlie received 11 consecutive life terms. Mm. And while wearing a bulletproof vest under his sweater, Charlie sat quietly as relatives wept and yelled at him from a lectern about 15 feet from where he sat. So they came in and gave their victim impact statements. And these people were shouting at him. Yeah expletives as you might imagine (laughs) exactly now a couple of things the movie isn't completely like the real story amy never got illegal meds for her conditions from charlie and amy never invited charlie over to meet her daughter who was 11 at the time but charlie and amy were really good friends now this is interesting i couldn't leave this out of the podcast because in the middle of all the sentencing charlie cullen offered up one of his kidneys for donation. Really? He operated under the plea deal until 2005 when he wanted to donate one of his kidneys to a relative of a friend in New York. Now, they allow the testing. This judge is like, sure, test him. Go ahead. Shut him up. Test him. They're thinking he's never going to be a match. Yeah. He was a match. Wow. How would you feel about that, getting a kidney from... Yeah, well, hang on. Okay. Then the prosecutor said that he couldn't give up his kidney until after his sentencing, and they had postponed that until they could investigate all of the possible deaths that were attributed to him. And Charlie's mad about this and said, well, he then he's not going to cooperate with the police. And he tried to avoid appearing for sentencing. But finally, he relents and he was sentenced in March of 2006. And in August, Charlie donated his kidney to a, quote, dying man. Hmm. Now, there were hospitals who would not let them do the transplant in their hospital because they didn't want Charlie on the premises. Yeah. They gave him an alias took him through the back door of a hospital, (laughs) harvested his kidney, and the transplant was a success. Wow. Now, you got to think about this. If you're the person who's getting the kidney and it's saving your life, do you really care if it was from an asshole or not? Because, you know, a lot of times you don't know where these things are coming, where organ donations are coming from. Yeah, most of the time they're anonymous. So, yeah, but the transplant was a success. But they did give him an alias and they brought him in through the back door. Wow. 
In 2008, families of the dead in New Jersey reached a confidential settlement with several New Jersey hospitals. And two years later, eight families filed a wrongful death suit against Charlie. And in March of 2010, a jury awarded the families $95 million in damages Hmm. so they could collect the money if Charlie ever sold his story. Gotcha. And to date, they have received... Zero. Nothing. Yeah. Nada. Of course. Yeah. Entertainment... The back end is always, we didn't make any money off of this. Well, that's if he sells his story, not if they, so he would sell his the rights to his own story. So how did they do this movie? It's about Amy. Ah, okay. This movie is about oh, Amy, okay. and that's why it's called The Good, the good Nurse, because okay. he's the sh- bad nurse. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I get it. I get it. Now, 62-year-old Charlie Cullen will be eligible for parole in June of... <laughs> 2388. <laughs> don't, yeah. Don't hold your breath, Charlie. Yeah. Quote, I thought that people weren't suffering anymore. So in a sense, I thought I was helping, end quote. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Then he says, quote, you know what I did? There is no justification. I just think that the only thing I can say is that I felt overwhelmed at the time, end quote. Charlie has expressed remorse for his crimes, but then added, quote, I don't know if I would have stopped, end quote. Wow. As for Amy Lauren, she's a Reiki master and a hypnotherapist, NLP practitioner, meditation instructor, dream sculptor practitioner, reconnected healer, integrative energy healer, past life regressionist, crystal language reader, medical intuitive. Wow. Wow. She currently lives in Florida with her family. Okay. Charlie sits in the New Jersey State Prison where he'll be until he dies or until June 10th of 2388, (laughs) 366 years from now when he'll be eligible for parole at the age of 428. (laughs) Uh, Just call him Moses. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So that's where Charlie sits. I feel terrible for all of these families because when you read about their lives, they all had such fulfilling roles and meant so much to so many people. And it was just by happenstance that uh, this guy happened to be there when they came in. That they crossed paths with with Charlie. And think about it. The nurse is who you trust the most at the hospital. If you've ever been in the hospital, the doctors come and go. But the nurses are the ones who save your life. I hate to say that. But it's true. Doctors do as well. But the nurses are the ones that are hands-on. And I think sometimes nurses notice things that doctors don't. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we talked about this in the very first episode. I'm a brain tumor survivor. And the time that I was in the hospital, the nurses became my best friends. Well, you were there forever. Yeah, you? well, I was there for a month. God love your heart. <laughs> you were there forever. But we're thank- so thankful that you are. Yeah. Yeah. That you are still here because yeah. you had good nurses. Yep. Had wonderful nurses. But that's the story of Charlie Cullen, the night shift nurse and killer. And that's all I have to say about that. Hey, Hitch to Homicide listeners. This is Chris Calvert. I love doing research and writing about real crimes, but I also love writing about fictional people who commit horrible atrocities. When you're ready to take a break from true crime for fictional crime, go to chriscalvert.com where you'll find all my books, including some free ones to get you started. Jane Doe is one badass chick who quietly hunts terrorists in the United States. 
The Sex and Lies books are all FBI and CIA cases with a little romance on the side. And coming summer 2022, book 10 in the series Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll releases. You can find all of these books everywhere, and if you like to listen instead of read, you can find them all on Audible. So go grab a free book or take a listen. I love all the characters I've written. I've given them pain, ruined their lives, make them suffer, and maybe even throw in a heroic death. Or maybe they live to fight another day. Check it all out at chriscalvert.com. And thanks for being a listener of Hitched to Homicide. Wow. Well, sorry, Charlie. Yeah, so if you watch this movie... Or you've already seen the movie, and now you're going to go watch the movie after you know the the real oh, yeah. truth of it. In the movie, he doesn't kill that many. They don't show as many people as he's actually murdered. He so was just on a tirade. For Jeez. 16 years, yeah. he murdered people. Yeah. And he put Yorkies in a bowling bag. Yeah, that's, yeah. That was enough for me. You don't, had me at Yorkies. Yeah, don't get me started on that one. <laughs> okay, well, let's get away from Charlie and let's go with a little, well, bless your heart. Okay, here we go. While two men broke into a Wachovia bank in South Beach, Florida, their buddy waited behind the wheel for their hasty escape. <laughs> Oscar Montoya and Juan Hernandez. Ooh, you did that so well. Well, it's it's my 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 <laughs> Latino accent. Yeah, the red hair and well, Latino accent. And in all transparency, I was an exchange student in South American high school. Okay, okay. So I'm allowed to like make okay, that accent. Okay, okay. You do it well. You do it well. Thank it's you. very sexy. Okay, Oscar Montoya and Juan Hernandez' ill-conceived plans started about 5:45 one Sunday morning when they smashed through the front window of the Wachovia Bank at the intersection of Lincoln and Alton Roads in South Beach. What could go wrong? Nothing at all. (laughs) But the bank was closed, so, unfortunately for them, all the cash was locked in the vault. Oh, yeah, yeah, makes sense. Early in the morning. Well, they didn't get that memo. The men (laughs) rerouted to Plan B, which was to make out with all quarters, dimes, and nickels, so they... Filled up some sacks and headed for the car. And anyone who has, who's ever kept a five-gallon jug of spare change in their closet knows that a bunch of coins can get real heavy Ooh, real quick. That shit's heavy. It is. But that wasn't their only problem. So here we go. It turns out that their designated driver, Ricard Barrios had fallen asleep, drunk behind the wheel of the getaway car. Wait, he was drunk behind the wheel? Is that what you said? <laughs> drunk behind so the wheel? So he's passed out. Oh, yeah, he's, he's gone. Okay, while well, they're pilfering coins. Yep. Okay. And all of the sirens' commotion wasn't enough to wake him up. <laughs> <laughs> he was really sauced. Police had to rouse Barrios in order to arrest him. The other two? Well, Oscar and Juan were trying to flee on foot. Oh, no. But but wait, they were trying to flee on foot with all of the coins. <laughs> and guess what? They were easily apprehended. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. How dumb is that? Oh, my. That's like your fitness instructor, like making you carry stuff. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. do, Yeah, that's what that makes me think of, pushing oh, the sled man. and all the fun things you do at the gym. <laughs> stealing bags of coins. Just, just out there stealing some quarters, yeah. man. Hey, well, at least they got their workout for the day. Yeah, and the other guy was just asleep. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they were all drunk. I guess it didn't say that in that article. But No, no. Well, if you have a bless your heart or you know somebody who's trying to 
wrangle pounds and pounds <laughs> of change, pocket <laughs> change down the street, you can send us a bless your heart. Yes. Just go to the website, hitchtohomicide.com. That's with the two, the number two. There's a pull-down menu, yep. and you can send it in. You can also suggest a case. We're getting a really long list of them. I do read them all. I promise you I read them all. They go on the list. Yep. Which we will get to. Yep. All through 2023. We're getting so close. Yep. Hard to believe that it's November. I know. Hard to believe it's November. It's flown by. It really has, but we're glad that you're with us for all of this. That's my handsome husband out in the studio. That's my beautiful bride in the booth. (laughs) Join us next time on Hitch to Homicide. Bye, y'all.